Brut, New Art on Stage, experimentelle Theaterformate, politische Performances, spannende Orte all over Vienna. Im Brut-Programm gibt es viel zu entdecken. Alles dazu unter brut-wien.at Welcome everybody to the sixth edition of Gesellschaftsspiele, The Art of Assembly. Today's podcast will deal with... Uh, Assembling More Than Humans. My guests are Rade de Souza and Sibylle Peters, and it's based on a live conversation on 16th of June 2021. Uh, first, thanks to Mincha Kammerspiele for hosting this, and especially to Miri Muratpur uh, for making it possible, and also to Brut Vienna, of course, uh, who produces the whole series. In the past editions, we have uh, talked about different kinds of assemblies in activism, art, and politics. If you hear it for the first time, you might want to check out the website, the, the lectures, podcasts, etc. on there. Also, a lot of other material links and so on. And we had looked at the, the potential of, of assemblies at, uh, of, as something that is already has a performative power just by happening in a way. But even more, I guess, at something, a sphere where we can uh, think about or create uh, a some radical imagination. And that's maybe the main main link to, 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 to tonight's session for me. Um, the question of how to develop a more radical imagination also regarding the questions of representation. Um, who is represented, who is not represented and why, who's represented by whom, etc. All these questions are core questions for democracies all over the world since a couple of years. I mean, always, but, but even more enforced than last, last years, but also for theater. Um, and we were talking a lot about this, but mainly we were talking about it is regarding humans, uh, regarding the question of representation of people whose stories are not heard, uh, whose rights are not acknowledged, etc. Um, and um, I guess in recent years, also more and more became clear that this, as much as this is obviously uh, a project far from being completed, is not ambitious enough somehow. So there have to be other agents also to come into play. So how can we talk, for example, about the climate crisis, the climate catastrophe that we are witnessing and that we are also fueling uh, without including uh, into this conversation other beings, entities that are in this together with us. So recent discussions around the Anthropocene and new materialism have quite fiercely challenged the idea of such anthropocentric limitations. But how can a parliament of things, to use the words of Bruno Latour, um, bring, for example, into this conversation other entities directly impacted by global warming, endangered species or plants or whole rivers, perhaps? So how can this become more than an abstract utopian concept? And how can we live a companionship, as Donna Haraway calls it, uh, that goes beyond a one-sided or even maybe merely sentimental relationship with animals, for example? So this is the, the backdrop for our conversation tonight. And we will focus on some specific aspects of the questions of, in relation to representation, for example. So currently, there are quite a few discussions of how to give political but also legal representation to non-humans, more than humans, other than humans, how to give rights to animals, plants, and landscapes. And for the lawyer and uh, law theorist and social activist Rada de Souza, this is not enough. For you, the problem goes deeper. So you, you argue that the concept of rights is already fundamentally flawed, as it always is associated with, with contracts, with uh, 
property, private property, and put social relationships into a contractual mode in a way, and drawing on insights from indigenous cultures and everyday practices, you point out the centrality of assembly for collective life among animals and humans. I'm very glad that you're here. Um, and performance maker and theorist Sibylle Peters deals in her practice as theorist and theater makers since many years with the concept of assemblies. I think you said like since 20 years or something, you, you work on, on assemblies. And recently you're also trying to create zones of companionship in which humans and other co-species co can come together without, as you say, food chains or soup cages getting in between. I'm also very happy you are here because obviously for the topic of assemblies in art and theater, you are one of the main protagonists of this discussion. So it took a while, but uh, till we managed, but I'm glad you're here. And um, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think it really brings another dimension into the topic that we have been talking about and dealing with in recent issues. And we will first hear a lecture by Rada that was pre-recorded and then have the input by Sibylle and then join all together again. Rada de Sousa is a critical scholar, social justice activist, barrister and writer from India. She's a professor of law, uh, development and conflict studies at the University of West Westminster. She has written and published extensively on a range of subjects and issues concerning social and global justice in the global south. And she's author, that's maybe most interesting for us tonight, uh, of the book, What's Wrong with Rights? Social Movements, Law and Liberal Imaginations that came out in 2018. I'm really very happy that you're here. I want to begin by, first of all, thanking Florian for inviting me to this conversation on the representation of non-humans in art and politics in this series on art and assemblies. Florian has asked that I for, or, or I pay attention to the legal relationships between humans and non-humans. I want to begin my reflections today by remembering my mother. My mother every day and she still does this today. She finishes her cooking in the morning and after that about say 11 o'clock she puts out a ball of rice on her kitchen windowsill for the crow. And every day, every single day as long as I have known my mother, which is all my life, the crow comes to the windowsill at sharp 11 o'clock. You can set your watch to it and will accept her offering of food. And I've seen this all my life. Occasionally, sometimes my mother is late in finishing her cooking as it happens sometimes. But the crow will still come at 11 o'clock and sit on her kitchen windowsill. And when there is no food, the crow will call and call and call. And sometimes my mother will talk to the crow and she will say things like, oh, one day I'm late and look, you don't have patience or, you know, can't you just shut up and wait for a little longer? Or she will say, I'm getting it done. You know, it's going to be ready. In, just give me another five minutes. 
And the way she spoke to the crow was exactly like the way we would speak to our children when they demand food and they're, you know, it's not ready in time and so on. Now, every day, yeah, she's not an unusual person in this. There are many others throughout southern India who follow similar practices like my mother. When they finish cooking, they will put out food for the crow outside. Now, why is it that we are not able to accept a relationship with other species and without bringing them under a legal or regulatory framework? My mother doesn't think that the crow has rights. My mother doesn't think that she has to defend the right to food of the crow. She just does it. And it's a relationship. And every day it comes at 11 o'clock and demands the food that she has trained, that she has almost like, you know, uh, created an expectation, if you like. Now, if you ask people in southern India why they feed the crows in this way, they will say, oh, the crows communicate with our ancestors. Yeah. Now, to many people, this sounds like mumbo-jumbo. Yeah? Especially those of us who are trained in scientific rationality, we think, oh, you know, we imagine that communication with ancestors will be something like talking to them on the cell phone. Does the crow have a cell phone and talk to some ancestor sitting somewhere in the heavens or in other planets or whatever? Now, <clears throat> This kind of rationality we have come to accept. Yeah. And, but however, this belief that people have that the crows speak to our ancestors and we must therefore feed the crows every day. When we feed the crows, we feed our ancestors and so on. It modifies human behavior. And it modifies human behavior in the sense that we learn to accept relationships with other species without demanding anything in return. You know, the crows are crows, we are who we are, and there is a bond between the two. But also modifies it because the crow's behavior becomes a metaphor, becomes something that a lesson, an analogy where we learn how to be in this world. Yeah? And here it influences art, literature, language. In my language, for example, which is Tamil, we have an expression called Kaka Kutam. Kaka Kutam literally means assembly of crows. Yeah? Kaka is crow, Kutam is a gathering or an assembly. Now, what is this Kaka Kutam about? Yeah. When a crow sees another crow that is dead, and it sees one of its own kind is dead, it will perch on some place available and start cawing. And within minutes, within minutes, you will have hundreds and hundreds of crows that gather around one of their own dead. So this gathering around to mourn your dead, we call 
kakakutam or a gathering of crows lately in the context of covid and whatever we have been using this expression quite frequently yeah we have many people dying people you may have heard about the situation in india and covid and we speak on the phone and we say to each other look what life has come to we are not even able to have a gathering of crows because we can no longer gather to mourn our dead and for me this inability to gather to mourn our dead or to have an assembly of crows as we call it in my language is in some ways symptomatic of where capitalist modernity has brought us to this is the trajectory that our civilization has come to yeah because mourning your dead is something that is so primordial that it happens in all cultures throughout histories it even happens among the animal world yeah and this we are no longer able to do assemble to mourn our dead and when we speak on the phone we say we cannot even do what crows do you know mourn our dead gather to mourn our dead and i want to emphasize that it is capitalist modernity that has brought us to this pass and by that i mean the social intellectual and cultural revolution that began in europe which alters the basic structure of knowledge and how we understand and know the world yeah from beginning from about the renaissance and throughout the reformation and the counter reformation this basic architecture of thought was kind of settled of course through arguments and debates and whatever else that happened and then we have what and this body of thought and the structure of thought is what we call the european enlightenment now this the hallmark of this european enlightenment or the structure of thought is the separation of people from nature yeah it begins with the debates on mind and matter and the relationship between mind and matter body and mind you know descartes various other people etc i won't go into all of that your re- listeners probably know these things better than i do even yeah but it is this separation of people and nature that really triggers this whole process of thinking and thought which is in turn based based on you know the dualism of mind and matter the dualism of body and mind yeah and this separation then introduces the nature culture dualism now the separation is established how how is it established the law plays a significant part in the way it is institutionalized and the way it is legalized and that is where the relationship to law comes in yeah um <clears throat> 
What the European Enlightenment did was to cut out all transcendental sources of law. Yeah? Law is no longer, does not come from ancestors, from God, from you know, whatever, or, or even based in any ethical philosophy as the ancient Greeks and, and, and the, or moral philosophy as in ancient Europe. But it becomes completely contingent on politics, which means effectively you have a group of people which we elect and we know from recent times that, you know, the, these elections are very fraught and therefore, uh, and, and are these days managed by your Cambridge Analyticas and whatever. And this is the body that decides what is ethical, what is our relationship to nature, what is, uh, uh, you know, our relationship to other species and so on. And I think this uh, legal system in turn is based on statistical uh, analysis. Most policy making has statistical inputs and logic. Logic is very much part of the law and scientific rationality, which is the basis of this kind of uh, a thing. There are, however, fundamental problems about this way of looking at our relationship to other species and our relationship to nature. If we remember that the European uh, mod uh, capitalist modernity or European enlightenment was spearheaded by merchants yeah? and it was merchants and intellectuals with some support by a section of the aristocracy that actually uh, spearheaded this revol social and intellectual revolution. And uh, for any merchant, the single most important thing is contract. Yeah? There is no mercantile law um, uh, or, I mean, there is no other more important thing for merchants than having a stable and reliable system of contracts. Now, contracts have a grammar and the grammar of contracts is a very dualist one. Yeah? There is a, there must be two parties to any contract. There is no contract without two parties. And the contract becomes archetypal metaphor for the concept of life itself. So life, everything from that time on becomes a dualist frame. For example, we have the social contract, which is an imaginary contract, but it's a whole social organization based on the principle, uh, on the understanding of contract. Yeah. Nature becomes property, which can be bought and sold in contractual terms. People become the labor force. And so from now on, you know, my capacity to work, which I have because I have a body, I can now sell that capacity to whoever will pay me, you know, a wage. And so we have the entire edifice of the legal system stands on the concept of contract. And it imposes a structure of thought on all of us such that when we are faced with an environmental crisis as we are now, we cannot think about the solutions outside the structure of a contract. 
Yeah. Now, when we think of protecting rivers or protecting animals or whatever, and we want them to have rights, we seldom stop to ask who is going to defend their rights. Yeah, because the rights framework, as I said, has a grammar. And the grammar of rights is there must be a subject of rights. That means there must be a right bearer. In this case, a river or an animal. There must be a substance of rights. That is somebody or uh, what is the thing? Because rights distribute entitlements. And so what is this thing that is being distributed between the contracting parties? And then we have what is called the... Uh, what is called the, the basis of entitlement. That is another part of the grammar. And uh, so what is the justification for claiming rights? And of course, there is lastly the purpose of rights. So when merchants speak of freedom, what they are effectively speaking about is freedom to contract. This concept of freedom is vastly different from the meaning of freedom for you know nature for living for the crow for example yeah and so we and this this grammar then limits the whole our interactions to nature in such a way that we are not able to think of relationships with other species we are no longer able to think of ourselves as part of nature because we too are part of nature we are also part of the animal kingdom if you like and we share and i'm reminded here of a australian philosopher called raymond gaeta and he wrote a beautiful book called the philosopher's dog and one of the things that has stayed with me from that book is the that we because we are also part of nature and part of the animal world, we share with other species a lot of attributes, a lot of characteristics. For example, you know, feelings of devotion, feelings of loyalty, feelings of pain, joy when there is new life, sorrow when there is death, like the assembly of crows. And we are no longer able to comprehend this and having conceded to the language of rights to understand this fundamental relationship we are then left to you know speaking about these things as if they were linguistic exercises so we speak you know should we use the word non-human should we use the word animal should we use the word this or that as if language can fix a problem that law has created by establishing this dualism and that to me is really the uh, fundamental problem that we are confronted with these problems cannot be fixed linguistically and the structure of the knowledge that we have today informs the law and political action is informed by the law we have no cosmological transcendental sources of law no understanding we science dismiss 
cosmology, dismissed ontology. So we have no other way of understanding this. And then we keep growing round and round with linguistic exercises, trying to change with language a reality that is vast bigger. Because nature is too vast. Yeah? Nature is too big. No one individual or no one generation yeah, can know or understand it completely. And therefore, you know, it is not something that can be understood by simple empirical data, by experimental methods, by investigations, by statistics, and, and some of these kind of common uh, methods we have of knowing things. And law is very much contingent on it. Law, is, the problem for law arises precisely because it was the law that broke the relationship between nature and people. We cannot re-establish it by using the same law. Yeah? And I think we are living through times when there are existential uh, problems that we face and we recognize them. But the solutions cannot come from the same kinds of sources that created the problem. And this is the problem I have with law and the relationship between you know, humans and non-humans, which law establishes. We want to change that using the same law. And that, to my mind, is just going round in circles. I'll just stop there and see what others have to say, or I'll just stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Radha. Well, of course, um, there would be immediately a lot of questions and uh, remarks. Um, but first, I'd like to also introduce Sibylle Peters. Uh, Sibylle Peters uh, is a researcher, performance artist, and theater director based in Hamburg. She's co-founder and artistic director of Fundus Theater, Theater of Research in Hamburg. And she's co-founder of the PhD programs Assemblies and Participation and Performing Citizenship. And she was head of the Heterotopia graduate program at Folkwang University of the Arts. And as I said before, I'm really happy that you're here, Sibylle, because you deal since many years with assemblies, mostly with assemblies of humans in different contexts, in activist contexts, theater contexts, or on the, on the cusp of both. Uh, but you also recently turned into uh, looking into the possibilities of assemblies with more than humans, assemblies with animals, etc. Um, but you will tell us more about that. The floor is yours. Yeah, thank you, Florian, for inviting me to be part of this conversation. And as you said, I'm here today as a theater maker and performance artist, also as a researcher. And just like you, I understand theater and performance first and foremost as an art of assembly, I guess. And I think actually that assemblies are fundamental for society. I, all major systems of society like rights, politics, education, religion, um, all those are based on certain kinds of assemblies, um, assemblies like the one in the courtroom or in the parliament and so on. And these assemblies have very specific rules and roles which have to be performed to make the respective system work. And while the, the rules and roles of these assemblies um, are pretty difficult to change, as to change them would mean to change the whole system based on these assemblies. The assembly in theater, the assembly of performance art, can be changed. It's different. The rules and roles of these assemblies 
um, we can we can create them in one way or the others other. So as an assembly maker, we can try to create different kinds of assemblies. We can influence who is gathering, who is playing which part, who represents whom, who is speaking, who is listening, who is called an expert, how collective decision-making takes place, how assemblies are seated or are moving around. And this possibility to experiment with the practice of assembling and of gathering comes with the possibility to do research. We can ask and we can try, how could social systems work differently if the rules and roles of the respective assemblies are changed? In Hamburg, where I'm based, we use this opportunity for research in a PhD program called Assemblies and Participation. Uh, this was an, a PhD program for participatory art-based research. Um, and in this program, dozens of alternative and often pretty improbable assemblies took place. For example, a project called The Youngest Court, Das Jüngste Gericht von Elisa von Bernsdorf, in which children formed a court of law and discussed cases which for some reason failed to find justice in the court system as it is. We also held a big assembly called The Art of Being Many, bringing together activists from the real democracy movements and artists experimenting with new practices of gathering. And I'm going to show you a picture of that in a second. I hope you can see the assembly, The Art of Being Many now. Um, you can find um, lots of documentation, insights, and also, also methodology from this participatory art-based research on assemblies and participation in an online resource that we just published this year. It's called uh, pab-research.de. And here you can find um, more than 50 research projects analyzed most of them around assemblies. Almost all the assemblies in, these, in this big body of work were assembling humans, though. Some of the projects reflected the fact that the assemblies of humans are enabled and formatted by things, by materials, by media, by architecture, by having a body and being a body, by infrastructure and logistics, by sharing food, by, by including sensual experiences and transporting effects and so on. But only towards the very end of this long period of research in 2019, I came to do a project that was different in this regard. And this project was called The Animals of Manchester, including humans. I did this project together with Lois Keaton from the Life Art Development Agency in London and by the time we started this project, it was clear to me that to do assembly-based research, you need a desire to drive things forward, a collective desire, a desire that is shared by many, many people. Um, and to find an unfulfilled de desire like that, um, I often look at children's wishes. As Florian said, I'm artistic director of the Fundustheater Theater of Research in Hamburg, which is a theater for young audiences. And here I have a lot of opportunity to ask children for their wishes. 
um, for a long time, um, these wishes were um, pretty diverse, 15 years, um, they were diverse. They were about pirates or about being rich, about talking to ghosts or experiencing a miracle. And we actually did um, assembly-based research projects on all of the before-mentioned wishes. For example, here about the wish to be rich, our own bank. Um, but recently, um, oh yeah, recently, uh, the wishes of kids started to change. In recent years, they have come to focus more and more on one topic, and this is the relation between humans and other living beings. Kids are really very concerned about that, and the wish to have contact with other animals on eye level and to find companionship and to end the loneliness of being out of touch with other species is has come to the top of the wish list of the children of Hamburg, at least, and also uh, the UK, actually, where I also asked. Given this desire, we decided to use the opportunity given to us by Manchester International Festival for an assembly of animals, including humans. We created a zone in a park around Whitworth Gallery in central Manchester, where we tried to reassemble a small version of the city of Manchester in which all species, including humans, existed together as equals, if only for a few days. To prepare for these, two for, for these few days, we worked with a big group of artists, researchers, activists and kids, more than 150 in total over the course of one year. And I'd like to call this kind of research heterotopian research, as it strives to create a heterotopian assemble and other space with other rules and roles of how to assemble within the given space of society, though. In other words, in heterotopian research, we are trying to create a zone in which, for a limited time, rules are different or at least can be experienced and enacted as if they were different. This is very difficult as, of course, the premises of the park around Whitworth Gallery are not ex-territorial grounds. All kinds of rules and regulations, laws and rights apply here. And these difficulties are actually what the research is about. Let me show you what I mean. Trying to reassemble the animals of Manchester, including humans, we started with an anamnesis of the animals concerned. First, of course, these were the animals present in the park, crows, actually, squirrels and insects, for example. These animals were free. It was rather simple to imagine how to meet them as equals. We simply invited them to the, to the assembly, for example, with a nuts house, an edible sculpture made exclusively for them, or with colors and aromas, which they liked. There were also dogs, which were walked by their owners. These animals were not free, but human property. And if we look beyond the park, the vast majority of animals concerned when it comes to the city of Manchester were, of course, also property. They were livestock, mainly cows and pigs, which entered the city in pieces as meat for sale, as property, but also as commodity, as product. 
In other words, the animals of Manchester broadly could be divided in humans, animals owned by humans, and animals not owned by humans. You might wonder what the overall relation between these two or three kinds or two kinds of non-human animals, let's put it that way, what, what the overall relation is. And this is a statistic of, wait. Yeah, this is a statistic of all mammals on planet Earth. And you, as you can see, the relations are pretty shocking. Of all mammals, 36 is us. 60% is livestock and just 4%, and this number is falling since the statistics have been made three years ago, 4% of wild, uh, or let's say free animals. Um, this goes for mammals, it's a little bit better for, for birds, but actually not much. 70% of birds are chickens and other poultry which we own, and 30% of birds are free. So Rada is absolutely right. Um, more and more, we are forcing the more than human world under contract law. We are destroying it by turning it into property. And this may have started a long time ago, but it is very much accelerating in recent uh, decades. And right now, it is coming to a pretty dramatic finale. There's not much habitat left. And we all know by now how taking over ever more habitats of free animals, like for example, bats, has actually caused the COVID-19 pandemic. We did not know that yet when we worked on animals of Manchester, but we knew that to reassemble the animals of Manchester as equals, we would have to work on and to try to redefine four different relationships, um, humans and livestock, humans and pets, humans and free animals, and humans and the extinct. We initiated four research groups consisting of artists, kids, and researchers to explore these relationships locally and find out how they might be changed towards more equality. The most radical idea coming out of this research or this, these groups was to free two cows from their status as commodity, buy them, set them free, and then have them present in the park as mayors of our alternative city. Interestingly, this turned out to be legally impossible in at least two different ways. First, the owner of an animal can decide to kill the animal, but she cannot decide to stop owning the animal and let it cross the divide to become a free animal again at least not legally. And at this point, we also worked with the UK-based Indian artist Anshuman Biswas about cows and humans in India and the case of the so-called sacred and apparently free suburban Indian cow. But not surprisingly, it turned out to be impossible to transfer this model into our park assembly in Manchester. Impossible not only due to property law, but also due to laws regarding human health and safety, which are basically damage control within the limits of insurance contracts and always a sort of law that assembly makers have to deal with a lot. Many of these health and safety laws now ensure that humans and the animals we own do, do not meet, do meet as little as possible. Many laws actually 
But for example, it is forbidden for a cow to walk or be in public space in modern European cities. There's a complicated process of getting a license for bringing a cow in public, which includes um, the necessity to put them in cages, high and very visible and very strong steel cages. I will show you what I mean here. Do you think it's cruel for you to be kept behind the fence? Cows and humans both have babies. Cows and humans only have one childhood. What kind of So in the end, we worked with the cow's petal and Pandora. Oops, sorry. With the cow's uh, petal and Pandora, who lived in a community farm. And ma which made its money not through meat production, but through education. These cows, Petal and Pandora, were our mayors at the assembly. And as they had to be in a cage, the only solution for that was that, that I, as the MC of the assembly, also had to be in a cage. So I spent the days of the alternative cities inside this little crowd control cage, right next to the cage of the cow mayors. When it, when it uh, came to working with pets, we tried to turn power relations around for the assembly. And for example, we had a human school instead of a dog school where humans were trained by dogs. Um, the teachers which we hired for being, uh, we hired as teachers for this human school, a bunch of dogs coming from a radical shelter in Manchester. Um, and this was when another sort of rights came into uh, play, animal rights. So here you see the, the human school. And one of the teachers we had at the human school um, was a, dis a disabled dog. Uh, this dog that didn't have back legs. And so he rolled around quite happily on wheels. We see this here. Um, and to have this happy yet disabled dog working with us brought uh, animal rights on the scene. For the project, we worked together with an expert on animal rights, a nice pragmatic man who until that point had no concerns, but the disabled dog triggered his alarm. He said, there would be a public shitstorm and ultimately we could be sued for working with an organization who didn't kill a disabled dog in their property, but let it suffer, as he said. As you can see, existing animal rights are a very weird case of rights. If one, for example, uh, owns racing pigeons, then these pigeons are protected by some form of right, owning these animals, you have to keep them in a way that is called appropriate to their species. Apparently, to let them race is appropriate, though to make pigeons race basically means to set them free far away from their home while keeping their beloved partners as hostages. To be a racing pigeon means to have to make a very lonely decision do you fly back to prison to be with your partner or do you stay away and become a free animal in the city? As it turns out, 
most of the pigeon population of Manchester City actually consists of former racing pigeons and their descendants. But weirdly, when these pigeons decide for freedom, they also lose their rights to animal welfare. While owned racing pigeons have animal rights in some form, free pigeons in the city are not much protected by anything. And when they shit on your property, you are allowed to get rid of them in any way you see fit. Another thing that triggered the animal welfare alarm of our expert was an activist we worked with. A woman who had turned her suburban home into a shelter for hedgehogs and was personally responsible for feeding hundreds of hedgehog babies all day and all night. And for a moment, this lady now, who had been honored for her efforts by the Queen of England, was a suspect of being what current animal welfare regulations call an animal hoarder. Someone who stops living like all the other usual suburban human beings and instead builds a symbiosis life with lots of members of another species. Someone like that might just be what Donna Haraway has in mind when she speaks about being living as co-species. However, current animal welfare regulations call this a condition, a mental health issue, and recently started to disown people who are stigmatized as animal hoarders. One of my main ethical concerns at the time was with the Beatles film theater in which only insects were supposed to be filmed, who showed up on the scene on their own account. To me, that was an important rule, but there was a scientist, a beetle expert from the University of Manchester who reigned over an archive of thousands and thousands of dead insects. And he was collaborating with the Beatles film theater and he wasn't really convinced of this rule. He was other, but otherwise an advocate and protector of insect life, just not of those insects he personally came across. So I struggled to make sure that he wouldn't just treat them as usual. And I hope the animal welfare expert would back me up by stressing that no insects should be harmed on our watch. However, he failed the script again and said, that insects don't have rights of any kind and can be killed anytime, no problem. And another legal boundary we, we couldn't cross in our efforts to reassemble. After talking to Whitworth Gallery about our plans for Animals of Manchester for more than a year, the gallery suddenly two months prior to the event uh, decided that no animals apart from humans would be admitted to the gallery, none whatsoever. We exhibited in the gallery the pantheon of performing animals, but performing animals had no access, which made us understand two things. What is called culture is mostly monoculture, and monoculture is what is disassembling us. Nevertheless, with the pantheon of performing animals, we were honoring animals as artists, as colleagues. And we meant that. Our aim was to treat animals as equals, not better, not worse. So for all the animals who were part of this assembly, we tried to do the same as we did for the human artists or for the kids researchers. We tried to create good working conditions and a good overall experience. So of course we paid the dog shelter to pay for the dogs who work with us 
for sure we worked with a disabled dog. We finally made sure, sure that no insects uh, were killed, uh, though they might have been dragged on stage once in a while. The assembly uh, at the town hall, the assembly inside the assembly, if you, if you may, was only in session when Petal and Pandora were coming into the public part of their cage instead of relaxing and sleeping in the private hidden part in the back. And when the assembly at the town hall was in session, the research groups of kids and artists reported their findings. Some of the kids made suggestions for the welfare of and dignity of city pigeons. Some others lent their voices to the extinct animals and read out poems in their name. In this assembly, inside the assembly, children were widely representing other animals. Um, and we thought that this might work because both animals and children are not usually represented in political discourse. Conclusion, we tried to reassemble the animals of Manchester, humans, pets, free animals, livestock, and the extinct as equal. And of course, we failed. But what did we learn? You might say it was given knowledge before, it was known to someone that cows are not allowed in public space or that insects have no rights at all. But the knowledge needed to be reassembled too. By trying to act as if rights were distributed differently, we reassembled what is divided by current rights and regulations and in this reassembling, we were able to experience, in contrast, what existing rights and regulations actually do and how they work to bring about the performance of our daily urban disassembled lives. After reading most of your book, Rada, I think if the, this might be a question, um, this question of what rights actually do might be what your work and my work somehow have in common. However, the kind of research described in this project, of course, is also fueled by the hope that the performative character of rights will allow us in assembly and by means of collective magic to bring other rights into being by making them feel right, if you may like the kids ambassador describes it here. And I care for all of the people in the world and all of the animals in the world. Yeah, in the open assembly at the town hall of the alternative city um, in the park, um, hundreds and hundreds of young humans swore an oath and committed to being an animal of Manchester, not better, not worse, than all the others. Um, and I did too, actually. And to be honest, I was considerably proud of that. But after reading your book, Rada, I'm not so sure anymore. I have a few doubts. Maybe I shouldn't be, I should stop to rely so heavily on rights when it comes to forms of collective imagination. What do you think? Thank you for your attention. It is a very, it's a question that I get asked often. <coughs> Florian, I'm assuming you want me to take that question. 
I guess uh, I just welcome back everybody and thanks for your lectures. And uh, yes, please take this question. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, there are this question of, yes, we accept all that crit the critique of liberal rights, but maybe there is something that can be salvaged from that you know, which is what I understand your question to be. Maybe it can be used differently. Maybe it can be put to a more, uh, you know, collective use. Uh, this kind of thing has gone on for quite a while. Uh, it's not a new thing of, you know, how can we use rights for different purposes? For example, the whole trade union concept comes with that, you know. Why can't we use contracts for collective contracts? And more recently, we have indigenous people, you know, who said we, we don't accept this individualistic rights concept. So, and then of course we have now, you know, much more. So, uh, you know, this idea of trying to make rights work. And I think the difficulty that we have with that is it takes us back to where we started. I think it was Einstein who famously said that you cannot resolve the problems by remaining at the same level of consciousness that created that problem. So what I'm trying to say here is for the last 500 years at least, you know, a certain way of thinking about these things has brought us to a situation where there is no fish in the sea, there are no whales in the oceans, there are no tigers in the forest, there are no forests, let alone tigers in the forest, you know? And it has come to this level that today we are happy even if there is a small sample of species somewhere, which is what the whole conservation logic becomes about. What I'm saying is we need to change the way we think about these things, yeah? When you were talking about your Manchester park and, and that thing, I was thinking of my city in Mumbai, yeah? Now, Bombay is a city of 18.5 million people. It's a huge city. And 25% of the city lives in slums, yeah? And stray dogs, we are the opposite. We have no laws for any of those animals, the stray dogs are everywhere. Yeah. And often when tourists, Western tourists come to Bombay, they get very, you know, anxious about these stray dogs and whatever it is that they do. But if you look at the relationship with people, for example, in the housing block that I live in, yeah, um, the stray dogs, they have their own life. They're territorial animals. They have their own life and they come and go. Sometimes people feed them, whatever. But at night, you know, if a stranger comes alone, if a stranger comes, then the, the whole group, a pack of dogs will go after them and it can be quite dangerous. But if a resident of that area goes, they don't do anything. I can come at one o'clock at night, walk home. The dogs will not do anything. Now, I'm trying to get people to think about what other possible relationships are there. 
And, and is there a different way of thinking about this relationship? I'm talking of a city like Mumbai, which is, you know, which is hardly the most uh, organized or regulated or, you know, city in the world. And, and you see these kind of things in everyday life. And I think that this idea that we should somehow be controlling everything and this controlling mindset comes from this uh, European enlightenment, comes from this legalization idea. Everything has to be controlled. Everything has to be, dogs have to be vaccinated. You know, everything has to be, have a place. But if you just leave it, and this is what I think we find extremely difficult to do. Give up control, don't do anything. Those stray dogs, you know, they don't do anything to us. They know I live in that area. And they never, they have never had a problem with them. Coming home, I walk home at 12, 12 1 o'clock at night. They don't bother. They come around, they go away. You know, I mean, I'm just trying to say, can we imagine another way of building those relationships? It is impossible to do in a country like the UK because... Every say, if you don't vaccinate your dogs at certain times, you know, in the year, you can be put in prison. The dog shits on the road. If you, you know, we have a dog fouling and fine for that. And the dog fouling, um, fouling fine never works because how are you going to capture on video? Imagine the level of securitization that it will require to capture on video every dog that fouls on the street and then to identify the owner and prosecute them. I mean, this is the level of ridiculousness. And then we talk about natural manure. Well, why don't we just say this is natural manure? It will, you know, some flower will grow out of that dog fouling. I think it's a whole mentality we have developed. I mean, I'm, I know this sounds frivolous, but, you know, it is a whole mentality that we have developed that everything must be controlled, everything we must dominate. Even when we want to talk about freedom for animals, we want to talk about it by talking about how can we dominate or how can we change that behavior. And I think what is needed here is we have to change our behavior, not ask the animals to change their behavior. Because we have caused this problem. We kill the whales, we kill the tigers, we kill the elephants, you know. So we need to change that. Because there was a time when we lived quite well. Farmers used bullocks for plowing fields. The bullocks were there. I mean, they owned it, but it was not like, you know, commercial ownership. There haven't been so many people back then as now. It's also a good thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that is that is again... Uh, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, I, when you were speaking, I was also thinking you mentioned so many people at that time. And that was that reminded me that when you were speaking, I was there were two thoughts that came to my mind on assembling. You know, one is what we are doing to the animals. We are also doing to human beings. Oh, look at the stealth bombers. Look at all the robotic warfare. Why do we keep on developing more and more of this? and we kill ch people. And when the children come here, we say, oh my God, we don't want the migrants. They are, they are going to ruin our culture and, you know, and, and so on. So we are, we are not discriminating between humans and non-humans at all. We are treating both of them as badly, if you like, as, you know, 
it's not like we are treating human beings well and we are treating animals badly anything that doesn't have a monetary value is we we think is of no use and this is where it comes down to the second thing that was crossing my mind and this is something that i don't know how you will see this is uh, you know throughout human histories human beings have always had a place for gathering you know animals have their own thing elephants for example live in herds they have their gatherings and so on but we have had always had so for example you know the maori have a marae or there is a meeting place in in traditional villages in india it is the banyan tree is your classical meeting place churches were meeting places but now if you want to meet if a group wants to meet there is no place to meet if you don't have money you can't meet even churches charge you money yeah i mean what is also interesting about this question i think in regard to the more than human world and i i also like that about your lecture very much um the assembly of crows the fact that um you call an assembly of crows basically a, a ceremony of burial right that is kind of you take the word from the animal kingdom and maybe also somehow the practice right so i think what is also interesting to kind of work against the culture nature divide or this whole divide between us and the other animals you know to to look at the way animals gather and assemble and how how that they actually do that you know and and how how interesting that is for us i mean that did happen theoretically in recent years we had all the swarm the swarm theory um that was very much about that but then you have all these different ways of organizing co the collective the herd the flock the pack and all they have all different rules you know and like maybe it could be interesting to get into an interspecies dialogue about how to gather what are the different forms of gathering you know i think that yeah but for that we have to gather and this is becoming a problem now yeah you're right i mean i hope that um that it will be less of a problem um than it was the last 18 months that was a special situation even right yeah i That's mean the covid is one part of the problem Yeah. but also i'm saying that for us to gather yeah even without the covid you need to book a hall you need to get police permission you can't just come together and say you know we want you have to be able to pay for that or you have to find somebody who will give you a donation you know you it's not like you can't naturally come together and meet somewhere if it is summer you may be able to meet in a park yeah i mean I, that might also differ from place to place here where i live we still have community centers we do have alternative um squatted houses we do have theaters which provide this service but of course in many places you don't yeah but what we do not have so much is places to assemble with other species in any yeah. kind of, uh productive or interesting way It's interesting that in a way you connect the problem to the we would then call call about the public sphere or the public space basically, which of course is again a contracted 
a legalized place, but it, it's at least this, this sphere that maybe exists a little bit more in Hamburg still than in other places. I mean, you know, that with Occupy and all these uh, occupations, these were topics also that came in, but then there are the rules playing out, okay. And of course, then with animals assembling in the public space, they are not that public that you could do that as you described similar very, very clearly. I, I was a bit, uh, thinking because of course we, we always, um, enter the question of, and it, it came up already with your comments below uh, that you say, but it was less people then. And so, so there's always the question of the, the reality check or the pragmatics coming in. And we, of course, in, in theater, as you also said uh, in the beginning, Sibylle, um, that, um, uh, that for, we can see theater and art and assemblies in theater as, uh, and art also as places of a certain imagination. We can play out things and we don't need to. We, we can pre-enact it, as it was said in former editions by Oliver Market, for example. So we can we can use this as a tool. So we don't really have to justify immediately the step, but how to implant implement this in a way. So you, you don't really have to implement it in the, in the city of Manchester. Uh, you also couldn't. You wouldn't be asked. But but also you you don't have this obligation. So you can just try out things and it fails. And failure is very important in this. Uh, I, I I kind of like um. Like the, when you you were mentioning the the assembly of assemblies that you did a year, some years ago, and you quite extensively wrote also about where it didn't work. So I think a part of assemblies in art very often now is about understand not about per making perfect assemblies, but of failing. So we have a certain freedom in in the arts in this in in the field of law that you work on. You can speculate also. You can you can write this, but at the same time you're also a barrister. You're also entangled in 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 pragmatic dealing with laws that you. The, with rights that you criticize on a, on a on a radical level, but at the same time I work with within them. Can you, uh, maybe it's an, uh, yeah, I, of course it's like in a way an unfair question, but of course it's always interesting how to, how to start. So how would you, how would you start, for example, if you would be, well, in a paradoxical situation, be a lawmaker or become uh, in charge of things. Uh, is there a pragmatic way also, because just going back uh, hundreds or even thousands uh, of years is, is, is not is not a pragmatic way, obviously. So, would there be pragmatic steps in 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 law and in in democracies and so on that you would suggest? Well, I mean, there are that's that's a very loaded question. You can't go back thousands of years, and you cannot unlearn what you have learned. So, you know what we know, we know we cannot unlearn that, and so that is something that is. Uh, 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 very clear, and you cannot go backwards. Time never goes backwards. Uh, in terms of what can we do pragmatically and so on, I mean, I uh, I am not a lawmaker, which is an option I had with my qualification, precisely because I think that the time for making reforms from within the system has gone. And this is the reality we are in today, yeah? Whatever reforms within the system was possible has been done, has been tried. And, uh, and that is why we need to come up with new things because this environmental crisis, the climate crisis is too big and it's happening very fast, much faster than we are thinking of solutions for it. So as far as the practical side is concerned, as a lawyer, as a barrister, if somebody comes to me with a case, then I have to defend that. And it's a small, limited 
role that I play as a professional, right? But just because my profession happens to be law, it does not mean that as a citizen, as a thinker, as a member of society, I must limit my thinking to the law. You know, in the same way, I mean, and I say this in my book, you know, I'm a woman and I'm a woman in a patriarchal society. Our societies are still very patriarchal. I grow up in a family. I criticize patriarchy, but that doesn't mean I stop living in my family. You know, there is a contradiction there. There is a contradiction, but we live with those contradictions all the time. But when it comes to rights, we seem to be saying that because I, if the police arrest me, I will have to go and defend myself and so on. Then therefore I must accept everything that the law, the legal structure, that's not the case. Imagine if, you know, 500 years ago, you know, somebody who criticized Newton, for example, you know, he said something that was not in compliance with the church's teaching and the people were punished for that. But it would be unthinkable for those people that there would come a time when God is completely removed from everything. See, this would have been unthinkable 500 years ago for even for the most radical thinkers. So I think somewhere what is happening with us is our imaginations. We are putting a straight jacket on it. Nobody else is doing it. We are doing it. And that is why I think that that is something that we, let us not just be overtaken by pragmatism because pragmatism can only take you so far. And the time for that is, is now kind of gone. And that would be, that would be my thing. We, there has to be a new solution. We can't keep doing the same things again and again. As far as democracies are concerned, I think that it is high time people woke up to the reality that this, what we call, what we imagine to be democracy is every day turning out to be more and more undemocratic. Our societies are becoming so undemocratic. Look at the anti-terrorism laws in, in the UK. You know, look at the, the surveillance systems. Look at the level to which the whole, the so-called deep state has gone into. We are no longer that kind of democracy. I think it's high time we also wake up and realize how much the extent to which our freedoms are gone. So maybe even democracy needs to be rethought. You know, so that is that is where uh, I would I would kind of uh, say this. We can't assume we are living in a democratic society. Not after Cambridge Analytica has started setting up election markets, where they their whole election market concept itself is fundamentally problematic for democracies. I mean, let me just, um, wouldn't, wouldn't it be just great to have a law, I don't know, globally, that forbids to have property over animals? That would basically rescue us, would rescue the planet, I think. I mean, the problem, just, just the problem here for one thing to do, you know, let's just say, okay, property law exists, but it doesn't cover animals anymore and see what happens then that would be i mean yeah 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 no i see i see what you're saying but the problem with that is who's going to make the laws mm. see we talk about the law the normative part but we don't talk about how 
the legal system operates. So who's going to make the laws? It's your parliamentarians, right? Today they will make it. Tomorrow, if the 51% in your parliament changes, that law has got no sanctity, it will go. This is one thing. Second thing, you when you start on a, ca a campaign, yeah, already, you know, you need to get a whole body of people who will accept what you're saying. Let's face it, today most of people think people who think like you and me are on the margins, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And when it comes to that, you corporate citizens are the most influential citizens, not Sibel and Radha and Florian. You know, it's the Monsantos and 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 you know the buyers and whoever else who are the big citizens. They have equal rights like you and me. And when they start asserting their rights, where do we, we stand? I would rather begin, a, you know, to de-recognize the corporate citizenship, the corporate personality and the citizenship that is vested and the equality between humans and legal entities mm -hmm. and begin with that thing because that is where the problem is going to come in. The problem is not going to come in with Yes, if we had a law, but there's a big if there. Who's going to make the law? How the law is going to be made? What are the Monsantos going to do when you campaign for this law? Because they are also got human rights. They've also got, you know, all the rights that we say we should have and we should give to non-humans. Well, I can just say to end on a hopeful note with this, that we, we in, in where I live, we might have a majority for it, like in 10 years when the, these kids are growing up that I meet all the time. Let's see. Well, with the majorities, we often have, uh, uh, on the left side, we always have sometimes have uh, two optimistic views on what majorities we could get for what. But of course, that's a, <laughs> but still the, the time issue come, comes also in, of course. Like, I mean, as you said, rather, well, there's no time and uh, and um, everything but everything you described needs time as you said we cannot unlearn at least we cannot unlearn within a generation or two but there's no time so this contradiction of course stays and i don't know what like like as a bill for you with them um, um also with the, all the improbable assemblies as you uh, call them you've you've done um how to relate to this idea yeah it's trying out yeah now you gave half an answer you said in 10 years the children will then be so it's part of the work in making the world better in in, in long time uh, in long, long term span but but how do you deal with the issue of time uh, for example in the climate catastrophe uh, in in terms of thinking of assemblies and thinking of reinventing and getting imagination and so on it's all because it's all projecting on a further it's all functioning when when one thinks one has time it's 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 much more difficult when we actually say no we have to do something now well what what this this i mean i totally believe that we do not have time however this feeling of okay we don't have time makes us accelerate and and be quicker and try to be quicker and do more and that is somehow also what we're not supposed to do i mean i think what we saw in the in the few assemblies which which we were able to to create during covid the one thing that i liked about it was that there was also there were so little people less people and between the people there was so much space outside and somehow everybody knew that it's not just the people assembling you know it was also 
it, COVID also assembled, you know, all the things in the air around us assembled. And somehow there was in a very bad way that I hated, but somehow there was, there was an awareness that it's not just a human assembly and never has been, but others are also there with us and we need to leave space for them between us. And I think that that's something that I would like to kind of, I don't know, I would tr like to try and hold on to in a way when it comes to more than human assemblies, because actually I'm just right now writing like an application to do something that is like in this line of work again, the a conference of animals. But um, of course, if you then have to write how many people are going to be there, I mean, for the money that you want for it and so on, you know that the economical side of, of making, creating an assembly. Um, of course, there, there, there can be easily just too many people to actually have an interspecies assembly, right? So um, I'm, I'm not quite sure if we should, if we should actually hurry anything. I, I'm more on, on Rada's side and, and think, I mean, I, uh, Florian, you know that from, from this other collaboration that we had before, um, the, the difficulty is that we should actually do so much less, so much less as, as humans, you know, and it's very difficult to legitimize that I now have to be this hugely active person who makes all this fuss about not making a fuss so much anymore. That's a little bit of the, the paradoxical situation when it comes to assembling humans and, and, and non-humans. And maybe a bit in the same vein, a question to you, Rada, also about, you said, okay, as a barrister, you, you, you do pragmatic work and help people within the system. And as a theorist, you, you open a wider, uh, wider, more radical way of thinking. But you're also an activist, or you describe yourself also as an activist. Do you, do you, have, do you have ways to, how, how as an activist do you try to, to accelerate or slow down or to, to inter intervene with, with this? Or, or is, it, is, is this also then in the pragmatic realm? Also, how does it connect to the utopian or, or, or let's say radical thinking that you propose? Well, uh, I think for me, activism means two things. You know, one is uh, if you're not engaged with the real world and with real people and real issues, then you risk becoming, you know, an ivory tower intellectual and start talking about things that don't relate to the real world. So I think for me, activism keeps me engaged with people, the problems, the issues, and also keeps me thinking, why is the world the way it is, you know, sort of thing. But the other thing is also going back to those same people, because ultimately change will come when we you know, when people act and when people uh, accept and internalize these ideas, I don't think we can 100% predict what will happen, but I think that it is important to go on challenging and pushing and pushing and pushing in whatever way we can, in actions, in campaigns, in protests, in every possible way we can, and to challenge these kind of ideas without compromising on the philosophical foundations of our ideas. 
I mean, this this has happened, for example, in anti-globalization movements. We used to have a you know big arguments, especially with people from the global south and the global north, and that came to be known as the fix it or nix it argument, because there were those who were saying we need to fix the WTO, we need to fix the World Bank, we need to do, and there were those many from and most of them from the global south saying no, you have to ask. Nix it, junk it, you know. We know it's not going to be junked. Nobody is going to wind up the WTO because pro protesters say that this is bad. But we have to keep saying that because only when we keep saying that, we don't get into the logic of their argument and get dragged that way. So if they, and then if they come up with some reform, they said, okay, you know, carbon certification. Then we started, okay, the, the problems protesting against carbon certification. Then now they want to come up with some other formula. Well, we'll be there to protest against that too. So this is, you know, through action, taking people to realize the philosophical and other issues so that we don't end up compromising. In our th thinking, we may compromise in our agitation or protest, call off a movement, call off and occupy agitation. But, you know, this, and that fix it or nix it, explains or frames that that outlook in a, in a very crisp kind of way. Which in a way relates to the revolution of reform uh, debate for, for, for hundreds of years, um, which again brings the problem that the revolution would be done by humans, I guess. So, so still for the, so it, it's a vision of something that that is part of the solution, it would still, would still need that. Um, maybe before we come uh, to an end to um, towards um, the, the, this official part, and as I said before, um, everybody listening is welcome to join us for the Zoom conversation uh, in, in a moment. There's the link uh, below um, below the, the image now on your on your web page, hopefully, where you can just enter. Um, but before we come to that, maybe to have a, because yeah, we, we're already almost there, but I would like like to to again maybe ask both of you to, to uh, say, uh, and you hinted at it, but maybe what are your next, next steps? What are you working on now uh, to, in, in this direction? What, is your, what, what are your not, not new uh, aspects of thinking or of, uh, of, of, of um, developing performances? You both hinted at it, but maybe if you could, could give an outlaw, how you per, uh, an outview of you, how you per personally, in a way, continue the work you were describing. Um, Do you want to start, Ada, or should I? No, go on, go on. I think, um, I wish I, I had a, a really good answer for that, but I'm, I'm still thinking because um, I realized more and more how, especially theater, especially the black box of theater is part of the, of this human monoculture machine and how, how I don't know, how deep theater is actually rooted in this, like creating this illusion that humans are basically the only, the only agents which count and everything else is technical equipment or props, you know? And uh, it's, it's really difficult to, to kind of go on in this line of work when you have to be program, when you have to program for black box theater, which I, uh, 
have to do actually. We were trying, um, at, um, the Fundestheater Theater of Research is moving. And when we were not having a new space yet, I was trying during COVID, during at the beginning of the pandemic to look at spaces which would be outside. If it might be better for us to be something like a park and just temporarily work with like buildings. Um, but, but I found that this is utterly is, is utterly it's very very difficult partially due to to what Rada also wrote about land land uh, and property of land um, there's it's very difficult to to find a space outside where you could actually do this work so now we have a new black box that I have to program but actually these days I was looking at the park next to this new black box and I was thinking about creating a conference of animals which is um, in Germ German people might know Erich Kestner, die Konferenz der Tiere uh, is, is a children's book about animals and children um, having an alliance against the adult world who goes to war again and um, maybe find a way a performance way that is not just creating this as a narration, but it's kind of enacting a new version of this, this old story. That's what I'm, I'm doing these days or around this topic. Well, I'm kind of lo looking at this human, non-human thing from the opposite end that you are looking at, Sybil, because you're looking at humans and other species, yeah? Well, I'm saying, I'm looking at, I'm working on a project now that looks at corporations and states and says, these are not persons. These are not humans. They are not entitled. I am human, not Monsanto, not Airbus, not the state. And the law gives, and this is what the law does. It establishes legal persons and natural persons as equals. So I'm doing a very different kind of human, non-human work. And what we are trying to do in this, and this is actually based on my book, and there's another art, Dutch artist called Jonas Stahl, and we are collaborating together to have a performative exhibition that will uh, interrogate the personality and these corporations, and it's called uh, Court for intergenerational climate crimes. And so we will have evidence against corporations and states who we will try as the primary criminals who commit intergenerational climate crimes, which goes generations past, generations to come and impacting on humans and non-humans. So we are trying to dramatize that and some of the arguments in the book through this hearings and the tribunal format, which will happen in Amsterdam later this year. Thank you so much, Rada de Souza. Thank you, Sibylle Peters. It was really a very inspiring talk for me, and uh, I'm glad we were opening the idea of assembly quite a bit today and looking from a different angle. Uh, and I'm quite sure this will stay with us for uh, future editions, and we will also return to this topic in future editions. Um, for now, um, I'd like to thank you all. Also, thank you for listening. And um, I might like to announce 
the next session, which hopefully will be held also analog uh, on September 14th, 2021 in Vienna, in the frame of Wiener Festwochen with Didier Eribon and Chantal Mouffe. Uh, so this edition will hopefully be analog, but also we will stream it online and there will be a podcast. And in case um, you don't know yet, or this is the first time you're listening, uh, please have a look at the other podcast editions of this series, but also at uh, a lot of videos and links and material, additional material on the website art-of-assembly.net. Thank you very much for listening and take care.